God, we want to trust Jesus. We do want to take him at his word. We want to believe that everything he says about who we are, the way the world is, what's wrong with us, and how what is wrong can be made right. We want to trust his word. We want to trust that his promises are good and right and true and will always be better. God, we plead that you would give us grace now as we look at your word to trust Jesus more. And in so doing, we would find it to be sweet and wonderful and right and good. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 104 years ago, a curse fell upon the land. The year was 1919, and the Boston Red Sox had established themselves as baseball legends in the then-fledgling MLB. They've won five of the first 15 World Series, and the larger-than-life demigod that led them into baseball battle was none other than the great Babe Ruth, known as the Great Bambino, the Sultan of Swat, the King of Crash. And as so many heroes often do in their rise to greatness, Babe Ruth demanded greatness from others. He showed up late to training camp in the spring of 1919, demanding the spoils of war, a huge payday from Red Sox owner Harry Frazee. The raise was granted, but a year later, Ruth wanted more. And knowing that he sat atop baseball's pantheon, he approached Frazee and demanded that his already increased salary be doubled. Frazee was strapped for cash at this point. He needed to finance other projects. So under financial duress, Frazee agreed to sell the rights to Babe Ruth to another baseball team that up to that point had never even appeared in the World Series, the New York Yankees. And from that moment on, the cosmos were realigned. And mystical forces coalesced, and the fortunes of these two teams were transformed. The Yankees would go on to win four World Series with Ruth on the roster, and over the next 80 years, they would win 22 World Series. Meanwhile, the once mighty Red Sox plunged into despair and defeat. For the next eight decades, the Sox languished in baseball. They reached the World Series just four times, and they lost each one in the seventh and final game of the series. This dispensation of doom for the Red Sox came to be known as the Curse of the Bambino. For the sins and folly of owner Harry Frazee, the Sox were destined for despair. Over the years, many attempts were made to break the curse. A street sign on a Boston overpass that read reverse curve was repainted to change the wording to reverse the curse. There was an effort to unearth a piano that Babe Ruth had allegedly tossed into a pond one day in a fit of anger. There was an exorcism staged outside of Fenway Park. The curse lingered and the Red Sox languished until 2004 when in poetic providence, the Red Sox faced their ancient cosmic foes, the Yankees. In the AL Championship Series with a spot to the World Series on the line, they came back from a zero to three series deficit. It was the first time it had ever happened in baseball. They went to the World Series. They defeated the St. Louis Cardinals to become baseball champions and the curse was broken. Of course, we on the West Coast watched this curse being broken with a fair amount of disinterest. I am a San Francisco Giants fan, and I know that I live in a hostile land, <laughs> surrounded by enemies. But as much animosity as exists between our two clans, we are united in this. We really don't like East Coast teams. 
So as we watched the breaking of the curse of the Bambino, we, were, we felt a mixture of ambivalence, maybe even amusement. There may have been a curse, but it felt more like a curiosity. After all, it wasn't my curse. It was happening in a distant land to a distant people with distant interests. But for those under the curse, the freedom was electrifying. They had been under the curse for this, the entirety of their lives, their parents' lives, even their grandparents' lives. The sins of Harry Frazee had passed to the third and fourth generation. All they had known was drought and despair. And then to have that curse be lifted in an instant. I mean, you may not think much of Boston sports, but at the very least, you should be able to muster some Christian empathy and use some sanctified imagination and to believe that it must have felt pretty great for them. Can you imagine what it was like to be played by a curse all of your life and then in an instant to have it miraculously reversed? To feel as if you were under a cloud that will not pass, only to have the light finally break through. To finally feel blessed instead of broken. To finally be free and to have hope to know that better days have come and they are coming. And then imagine what it would be like to taste that blessing, to taste that freedom, to taste that hope, and then say, I think I liked it better under the curse. The darkness was comfortable. The burden wasn't too bad. The pain wasn't too difficult. You can keep your blessing. I think I'll have my curse back. Thank you very much. In our passage in Galatians this morning, Paul's going to show us that this is the temptation that plagues every Christian. That we would take the blessings of our salvation that we've been given by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and we would throw it in the trash and return to the curse of living under God's judgment. And we say, you can keep your blessing, God. I think I'll have my curse back. Thank you very much. As we've been studying through the book of Galatians, we're moving through a section in chapter three where Paul is confronting the false teaching that is making his way through the Galatian church. The Galatian believers have been duped into believing that in order to have a right standing before God, they didn't just have to believe that Jesus had died and rose from the dead for them. They also needed to continue to obey Jewish law in order to maintain that right standing. The gospel was good news, but it wasn't good enough news. And Pastor Allen and Pastor Francis both showed us from this chapter that the way that God has always designed to pour out his blessing of salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Paul doesn't want the Galatians to forget where blessing comes from, where our salvation comes from. And we come to our passage today in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, and he wants to see, to see the other side of the coin that not only do we see the blessing of salvation, but we need to see the curse that comes when we're trying to be saved by anything else. He's going to describe a life that has come under curse, the curse of trying to please God on your own merit. And mercifully, he is going to describe how that curse can be lifted. So please take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter three. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 14. Paul writes, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is God's holy word. So we're going to look at this passage in three sections. We're going to see the curse, then we will see the cross, and then we will understand the consequences. First, let's look at the curse. Look again at verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So Paul transitions from a discussion of salvation blessing to a sobering warning of a threatening curse. He says that all those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. If you think you have to please God by virtue of how good you are, how much you've done, how obedient you are, how righteous you are, Paul says you're not living a life of blessing, but in fact have put yourself in the position of living life under a curse. The idea of a curse, it might feel a little silly or foreign to us as modern people, right? This is the stuff of mythology or legend or pseudo-spirituality. But we have to understand that the idea of curse is very real because the Bible speaks of curse in a very real way. Scripture often couples together the twin ideas of blessing and curse. And if you understand one, it helps you understand the other. Last week, Pastor Francis referenced one of the most famous pronouncements of blessing in scripture. It's sometimes called the Aaronic blessing. It's found in Numbers chapter six because this is the blessing that the high priest Aaron was to pronounce over the people of Israel. And this is what Aaron was to bless God's people with. This is his pronouncement of blessing. He says in Numbers six, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. We recognize this as a, such a common benediction for us at the end of our services, but have we ever thought about what it means to receive this kind of blessing? This passage unpacks what blessing is. Blessing is not just vague, good stuff happening in your life. Right? It's not the picture that you post of your pumpkin spice latte with your golden doodle telling the whole world that you are hashtag blessed. Biblical blessing is found in a relationship with God when he sets his favor and care upon you. And look again at number six, for God to bless you is for him to keep you, for him to protect you and provide for your every need. For, for God to bless you is for him to be gracious to you, to not treat you according to what you deserve. For God to bless you is for, you, for him to give you peace, true peace, wholeness, shalom, one particular facet of this ironic blessing that I, I love is this descriptor that to be blessed is to have God shine his face on you. And there's a parallel of that, that he would lift up his countenance upon you. If you've ever seen a new father with his newborn child, right, he's cradling this young, precious life and he gazes at his child and his face is filled with, with such love and joy and happiness. A father's face shines on his beloved child and that child 
is blessed. And to live under God's blessing is for God's face to shine on you. That he looks at you and he feels love and joy and happiness. That is blessing. So what then is it to live under a curse? What if the ironic blessing was distorted and corrupted? What if it became the ironic curse? I think it would read something like this. The Lord cursed you and destroy you. The Lord turn his face, turn away his face from you and may you only get what you deserve in your sin. The Lord scorn you and may he frustrate you and fill you with anxiety and dread. That's curse. It's not karma. It's not bad luck. It's not just having bad stuff happen to you in life. It's not missing out on the World Series for 80 years. It's being under the judgment and wrath of God. It is for God to turn his face away from you to cut himself off from us, to remove his goodness and his kindness and his grace and instead to place on us judgment and punishment and pain. It is a dreadful thing to come under the curse of God. And Paul says that this is what we choose to do when we rely on the works of the law. Continue on in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse when we decide that we can earn God's favor, when we think that God's opinion of us rises and falls with our righteousness, when we think that the gospel is not enough, we are placing ourselves under a curse. We are the owner, owners of the Boston Red Sox. We feel that there's a better deal to be found in selling off our greatest asset. We think that we are better off without the hero that won our salvation for us and that we can forge a better future for ourselves. And that's a sobering thought that God looks at us when we think that we can earn his love. And he says, I'm against you in that. I oppose you in that effort. And why is it that God takes this so seriously? So Paul unpacks two reasons why living under the curse, under the law is living under a curse. So he actually reaches back into several Old Testament passages to prove his point. Right? The false teachers of Galatia, they were, they were Jewish and they were using scripture wrongly to try to prove their point. So Paul wants to correct them by using the very scripture they would have appealed to to show why living under the law is living under a curse. So the first reason Paul gives is that obeying the law perfectly is impossible. Obeying the law perfectly is impossible. Go on in verse 10. For, here's the reason, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This is a quotation from Deuteronomy chapter 27. But in that context, Moses had gathered Israel before they entered into the promised land. They had been rescued from Egypt. They'd received God's law on Sinai. They'd wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And Moses gathers them together at the outskirts of the promised land between two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. One is the Mount of Blessing and one is the Mount of Curse. And between those two mountains, he reads the law before them. And he tells them, if you obey the law, you will receive blessing. But if you disobey the law, you will be cursed. Paul references this particular passage to highlight 
that the curse comes to anyone who does not abide by all things written in the law. God's requirement is complete obedience to the complete law. And the consequence of failure is curse. The unspoken implication here is that no one obeys the law. It is impossible to fully obey the law, to perfectly obey God. Right? We say this all the time. We have a phrase that is so common in our vernacular. We say, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. And we usually say it as a justification, as a way of explaining our shortcomings, to make us feel better about our failures. Like, nobody's perfect. So why should I feel bad about the fact that I'm not perfect? But in this case, instead of justifying us, the statement and the fact that we are not perfect condemns us. Failure is inevitable, which means a curse is inevitable. So the law is impossible to obey perfectly. The second reason Paul gives is that relying on the law is incompatible with God's plan for salvation. It's incompatible with God's plan for salvation. Look at verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul's argument here is that trying to maintain a right standing before God by virtue of what you do and how good you are is fundamentally opposed to the way that God has always wanted to save his people. God has always wanted to save his people through faith alone, through trusting in him by grace alone. This is what we saw last week. Even with the this beginning of Israel's story and the calling of Abraham, God saved Abraham, not because of his obedience or anything he did, not because of his righteousness, but because he heard God, he heard what God promised, and he believed him, and he trusted him, and he had faith in him. In our passage, Paul grounds this argument in a reference to Habakkuk 2.4. This is what it says in Habakkuk. It says, behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Paul uses this exact same passage in Romans 1.17 to make the same point, that the way that God's people experience true life, fullness of life, fullness of life that comes from living in the righteousness of God, we get access to that through faith, by trusting that God will meet our every need, that all the promises he's made to us are good and right, and he will make good on them. He will overcome every deficit we have, and he will provide for our every need. And from the Old Testament into today, all we've had to do is trust him. That has always been God's plan. Paul goes on in verse 12, he says, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. He says that the very nature of the law runs contrary to salvation by faith. He quotes from Leviticus 18.5, and there it talks about how life under the old covenant um, would only come to those who obey the law. Right? This is hard baked into the nature of the law itself. And it sets up this impossible standard for us to obey. So Paul is completely baffled by these Galatians who've fallen prey to this false teaching. He's trying to help them see they've wandered from the true gospel. They had taken the good news of grace and they said, it's not enough. It's not enough to just believe, 
to just trust and to have faith, I have to also keep obeying, keep being good enough, measuring up enough in order to stay on God's good side. And they deviated from the plan that God had had for them all along. I think for the most part, we've come to trust Google Maps implicitly when it comes to getting directions. Right, not only is it gonna give us a way to get somewhere, but it tries to give us the best way to get somewhere. Right, it takes into account traffic and accidents, road closures, everything. But have you ever been in a situation where you saw what Google Maps was telling you? You saw those omniscient directions and you just knew in your heart, there's a better way to go. Why would I exit the freeway here? Why is it telling me that I should leave earlier? So what do you do? You deviate from the plan. You go your own way. And I cannot tell you the last time that worked out well for me. God has always had a plan. He's always had a plan to bring you home to him. The best route in order for your relationship with him to be restored and that is through faith alone, not our own righteousness, not our own works, but our legalistic, law-keeping hearts always feel like we know better, and we long to deviate from the plan. Each of us has a bent that wants to try to earn God's favor on our own merit. And some of you here may not be Christians. We're so thankful that you're here. And you may think that God will save you that if you just turn your life around, right? or maybe if you're just a good enough person that you've done more good than bad, or maybe you look at your life and you're here and you just can't help but believe that there's, there's so much bad in your life, there's no possible way that this God would want to have anything to do with you. And some of you are Christians and you, you can't shake this feeling that God would be just a little bit happier with you if you did a slightly better job. And you think, that God's attitude towards me must be fluctuating somewhere in the range of slightly annoyed to low-grade resentment. And things would certainly be better if I could just get my act together for a little bit, or maybe I'm missing out on some blessing of some kind because of the mistakes I've made. And if I can just pull myself back together, then I'll get back on God's good side. In an article I was reading about the Red Sox curse, the writer was listing out all the attempts that were made to, uh, to lift the curse. Superstitious exorcism, gimmicks and gags. And the writer said this, only on-field results could break the curse. Only on-field results could break the curse. The only way to break the curse was to play well enough, to be good enough. And that may be true for baseball curses, but that's a lie in our spiritual lives. We can't play the game of life well enough. We can't be good enough. Some of you are deceived into thinking that you are good enough and you're not. And some of you despair because you know that you're not good enough and you never will be. The curse hangs over us whenever we think we can please God on our own merit. So how can this curse be reversed? We cannot break the curse ourselves. God provides the only solution for the curse, and that is in the cross. The cross. Let's look at the cross. So Paul gives us the sober news about the curse we place ourselves under 
when we live under the law, but then he gives us the good news, the great news about how this curse can be lifted. And that is because Jesus became cursed for us. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is the first mention of Jesus in this whole chapter, in this whole section, this whole discussion of faith and blessing and law and salvation. It's as if Jesus has been waiting in the wings of this production, waiting for his cue, and finally he bursts onto the stage and he takes the spotlight as the hero we've been waiting for. When we were cursed under the law, Christ emerges and he redeems and he ransoms and he rescues us by becoming a curse for us. It doesn't say he removed the curse from us. It doesn't say that he canceled the curse for us or he just decided to make the curse go away. It says he became a curse for us. Something happens to Jesus that is so visceral that Paul says that he becomes a curse. And Paul tries to explain this by quoting from Deuteronomy 21. He says, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Here's what was written in Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. Someone who committed a capital crime would experience capital punishment and then their body would be hung on a tree, on a wooden post. Being hung on a tree was more than physical punishment. This was the curse of God. This was divine punishment. The law stipulated that the one who hung on the tree bore the curse of God. The crimes committed by the hanged person were so heinous and so foul to God that the very wrath and anger of God rested on that individual. And he was under curse. And what Paul is trying to say is that the way Christ would rescue us from the curse of the law, the curse of not being good enough, is he would take our curse and he would put it on himself in our place. This is shocking because Jesus was the most blessed man who has ever lived. Where we think of someone's blessed life and we think of how easy, how prosperous their life must be. Jesus didn't have that kind of life. He had a very questionable birth story. His parents sometimes lost track of him as a child grew up in a peasant laborer's household. A lot of people really didn't like him for a lot of his life. His family, most of the time, thought he was crazy. Doesn't appear to be a very blessed person at first glance. Now he was blessed in the most important way, in the most biblical way, because the face of God always shone on him. God's countenance was always lifted up upon him. His heavenly father always gazed at him with love and happiness and joy. And as the second person of the Trinity, he had always eternally enjoyed perfect fellowship with God the Father 
In his earthly life, he lived in perfect obedience to him and in perfect relationship with him. Do you remember at his baptism, what happened? He enters the waters. John the Baptist baptizes him and the heavens parted and divine blessing is spoken over Jesus as the father himself speaks into the world and he declares, this is my beloved son. But this blessed son became our cursed savior. He took our curse upon himself. As you think about Jesus' path to Calvary, do you see how the curse hangs heavy over his whole journey? He prays in the garden the night before his crucifixion. And he pleads with the father, take this cup away from me. And what he is contemplating is not the physical pain. He's not looking ahead to the scourging or the beatings or the crown of thorns or the nails pressed into his flesh. He is looking forward and anticipating the cup of God's wrath that awaited him. Not wrath that he would deserve, but the wrath that we deserved. He anticipated the curse that was to come and the curse that he would carry. Jesus goes to that cross. And in that moment, a divine transaction takes place. He becomes our curse. For six hours, Jesus hangs on the cross and our sin hangs on him. Our sin, our failure to obey the law, our anger, our lust, our materialism, our selfishness, our abusive tendencies, our greed, our laziness, our pride, our impatience against our kids, our discontentment with our singleness, our idolatry of work, our bondage to material things, all of it is placed on Jesus. And subsequently, the curse and the wrath of God that we deserve is placed on him as well. As the beloved son hangs upon the cross, the father looks down from heaven and gazes at the beloved son whom he has always loved and he sees the sin and the guilt of us, our rebellious creation, the rebellious world that has turned away from him, resting on his son. And the father turns his face away. All that remains in that moment is curse. And the ironic curse comes true for Jesus. The Lord curse you. The Lord destroy you. The Lord turn away his face from you. May you only get what you deserve in your sin. The Lord scorn you. May he frustrate you and fill you with anxiety and dread. That's what Jesus felt upon the cross. And what must that have felt like for him? Jesus had only ever experienced the blessing of his father's face shining upon him. But at the cross, that blessing is nowhere to be found. All that remains is curse and wrath. And in despair, the once blessed son of God cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the cry of the cursed. He became a curse for us. We deserved to be forsaken by God 
and he was forsaken in our place. We deserve wrath and he suffered wrath in our place. We deserve to be cut off from the father and he was cut off in our place. We deserve judgment. He was judged in our place. I love this quote from Spurgeon. I love any quote from Spurgeon. It's kind of a preacher's pack whenever you're preaching. The curse of God is not easily taken away. In fact, there was what, but one method whereby it could be removed. The lightnings were in God's hand. They must be launched. He said they must. The sword was unsheathed. It must be satisfied. God vowed it must. How then was a sinner to be saved? The only answer was this. The son of God appears. And he says, Father, launch thy thunderbolts at me. Here is my breast. Plunge that sword in here. Here are my shoulders. Let the lash of vengeance fall on them. And Christ, the substitute, came forth and stood for us, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. The blessed son of God became our curse. And what that means is that there is no curse left for you. The cup of wrath has been drunk dry. There's nothing left for you to drink. The justice of God has been satisfied and you were declared free and innocent and righteous because of what Christ has done. What do you feel is your curse? What part of your life do you look at and you just can't help but believe that God is against you there? Where do you feel that the blessing of God has vanished? Beloved, see the cross see that cursed tree and see that on that tree, on that cross, God turned away his face from his one and only son so that for all of eternity, he will never turn his face away from you. See the cross where Jesus was cursed so that you could look at every facet of life and say definitively that no curse of God will ever touch one corner of your life, but every moment that comes into your life, the good, the bad, and the hard is an act of God's blessing. See the cross. See that Jesus was forsaken by God and he was left alone so that you would never feel alone again. Where how do you access this kind of freedom? But what do you have to do? How do you get free from the curse? Or do you follow the Red Sox playbook and just have to be good enough and play well enough? No, Paul's whole point is that freedom and forgiveness come by faith, by recognizing your need, recognizing that Jesus came and met that need by becoming the curse for you. And all you have to do is believe and trust that Jesus did it for you. And what is the result? of the cross, Paul ends by leading us to the consequences, the consequences. So there are two consequences in verse 14. And we see that they're introduced by so that, right? This is the reason, the purpose, the end goal of why Jesus has done this. First is we receive God, Abraham's blessing. We receive Abraham's blessing so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. There's a lot here, but God promised that Abraham would be blessed and through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed. So the story of the Bible from that moment on 
from the ratifying of the Abrahamic covenant till now is the, 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 it's this question looming over all of history. How is God going to bring that about? How is God going to bless this one person and somehow connect the dots so that all the nations are going to be blessed? How would the story of God saving one man result in the salvation of people from every tribe and tongue and nation? And there are a lot of steps to fill in there, but Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the culmination of that promise. And through Jesus, God extends salvation blessing to all peoples so that all the Abraham's blessing goes to the Gentiles, to the whole world. We haven't really conducted a lot of demographic studies at our church. I'm going to make a rough estimation that we don't have a lot of Jewish people here at Lighthouse. We definitely have some. There are definitely some people of Jewish heritage here. And that is his own wonderful story of God's promises continuing to unfold in God's people. We praise God for that. But does it ever dawn on you that we are an overwhelmingly Gentile church? Do you ever describe Lighthouse that way? What kind of church are you? Oh, we believe the Bible. We're gospel-centered, mostly Gentiles, right? That's not normally the category we have when we think of how to evaluate our church. It feels so normal for us to just have people of different ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds here. And we forget that is a miracle. That is an act of God, a literal act of God, that a group of Gentiles 7,600 miles away from Israel and 2,000 years after the crucifixion are recipients of Abraham's blessing. We are God's people. And that should make us wonder and marvel that we're included in God's story. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter two. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, and this is true of your life before Christ. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we receive Abraham's blessing. Second, we receive the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 14 again. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Paul says that one of the great results of Christ redeeming us from the curse is that we're given the Holy Spirit. One of the limitations of the law of God's requirements for us is that they're always outside of us. God's law is a standard that exists outside of us and we are trying as hard as we can to get our insides to conform to it. But God promised that there would be a way for the law that is outside of us to get put inside of us. And he would do it by giving us his Holy Spirit to live in us. This is prophesied throughout the Old Testament. Let me just read you one from Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. If you're a Christian, this is your reality. You have the very spirit of God in you. The law no longer is something that is outside of you, that stands over you, but God has literally gotten inside of you to transform who you are so that you can live for him. And isn't it marvelous 
that we who were cut off from God, who's, 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 against who God's fit had turned his face away, that Jesus would go, have his, the very presence of God removed from him so that we would have the very presence of God live in us forever. We have received the Holy Spirit. So as we bring this, to a clo- uh, as we bring this sermon to a close, one lingering thought that may be on your mind is, well, that sounds great. So what do I do with that? Can you make this more applicable for me? Can you make this more relevant for me? I realize that there hasn't been a lot of that in this particular sermon. The answer is yes. Oh my goodness, yes. There's nothing more applicable and relevant than the freedom that we experience in the gospel. We could talk for hours. We won't. We could talk for hours about all the ways that this is relevant for us. But as much as that is true, it would be a tragic irony if we heard a message about the dangers of depending on what we do to please God and then immediately ask, so what do we do? I am all for relevance and application. I've grown so much here at Lighthouse because we want to see how the gospel impacts everyday life. But sometimes... Sometimes the best thing to do in response to the incredible truth of the gospel is just be amazed. Just be blown away that it's true and that it's true for you. What's the application point of the Grand Canyon? What is the relevance of a visit to Yosemite? We long to go to those places We long to gaze upon these immense, majestic, beautiful things. We sojourn to these places so we can just stand there and look and be blown away that something like that exists and that there is a God that will let us see it. Sometimes the best and most appropriate response to something breathtaking is to just have your breath taken away So how do we apply a message like this? Stand amazed at the fact that you are not under a curse and that God loves you and you are part of his family. About a week ago, um, a few of us had the opportunity to travel to Japan to support our church plant in Nagoya by serving them during their all church retreat. So I had the privilege of being their guest preacher and Nicole Kosabayashi, Tiffany Yang, Junko Kubo, Daichi Suruda, they came along and they helped us create a, a wonderful children's program. And their church sends their greetings to you, Lighthouse. They're so grateful for you. It was such a blessing to see the culmination of years of prayer and support, your prayers and support in this beautiful church family in a dark and needy country. One of the families that attends the church has a son with a disability. And disability is difficult anywhere, anytime but particularly in Japan, where there are standards and expectations all around you. And there is this constant pressure to meet those standards and expectations. And disability really makes that difficult, if not impossible. And we can feel it here too, that there is a sense of embarrassment and shame that comes from feeling like you or your family or your family members are a burden and that you don't belong. But as this family, as, particularly as the mom and her family have become part of Logos Community Church, the pastors there have been so wise and so loving, so gospel-centered, and they've told her, no, we need your family here. We want you here. 
your family, makes our church better when you're here. Can you feel the partnership that we have with them? The way that our lighthouse love has now made an imprint in Japan? So the mom was sharing with me how difficult it was to hear this and how difficult it was for her to believe this at first. Because there's so much temptation to just feel badly about how you're burdening others. And then you feel bad that you're feeling bad about how you're different. You're not measuring up. And she said, you just get used to saying sorry a lot. I'm sorry. Because you're so laden with guilt. But as the church has been ministering to her, she said her heart has been transformed. And she said that she's learning not to say sorry, but to say thank you. Thank you. She doesn't have to be burdened by measuring up. She doesn't have to be burdened by, by not living up to someone's expectations. But she's free because she recognized her needs, received grace in the care of others, and is filled with gratitude so she can say thank you. That's what we do with today's message. That's what freedom looks like. And what a beautiful picture that is of how to experience God's grace. We don't have to be burdened by the curse of our sin, the curse of feeling like we have to earn God's favor. We feel the freedom of having our curse removed so we can stand, look out over the vistas of the gospel, be amazed at it, have our breath taken away, and we can say, thank you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you we thank you so much for the freedom we have in Christ. God, we are so foolish. We have been so bewitched into falsely believing so often that how you feel about us changes with how we live. That your love for us is some volatile, effervescent thing when in reality it is solid as rock. It is stern, it is fixed, it is not changing, it is immovable because the cross is fixed. What Christ has done for us, he did once and he accomplished everything for us on that cross. God, we are blown away that you would look at us, your cursed creation, and that you would take that curse and set it upon your only beloved son. God, would we be blown away and amazed and filled with gratitude that we are free in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.